This program is brought to you by Haymarket Books as part of the Socialism 2022 program. You can hear more recorded sessions from the conference by subscribing to the Socialism Conference podcast feed. Many video recordings are also available at socialismconference.org. If you enjoy these recordings, keep an eye on socialismconference.org for updates about the next Socialism Conference and how you can participate. You can help support the Haymarket Project by buying books at haymarketbooks.org and especially by joining the Haymarket Book Club. Be sure to subscribe to our podcast and the Haymarket YouTube channel to access all of our upcoming events. If you really want to help us out, rate and review the podcast on Apple or whatever platform you're listening on. Strikes are a festival of the oppressed, 
And it, it, you get that feeling that it, it almost feels festive. Um, people's solidarity and, and the, the feeling you get on the line where you get a little taste of your collective power, you don't get that taste very much, right? Uh, and so I, I think that would just be the, the first thing that strikes me. It's, just, it, it's hard not to be stirred by it. And there's that whole like euphoria of feeling once collective power, which is such a rare feeling in atomized capitalist American society. Euphoria is a good word. But there's also, um, and I think we've all felt that at, at protests or on picket lines and in other, other moments, but the film, Yael, also really looks at those moments of uncertainty, of the difficulty of holding the lie. Um, and I want to ask you both about that. Yael, did you, were you, was that kind of a storyline you were looking for, or was that one you just encountered and it was pretty clear that, that, the, that the discipline and the commitment had to just be reproduced every constantly? Um, yeah, can you guys hear me? Okay. Great. Okay. I was having a lot of internet problems uh, in, my, in my home this morning. Um, well, definitely trying to capture joy and euphoria with the picket lines was something we were very conscious of, that it's really hard, but also you're there and you feel your power and you have a community around you and it ends up feeling fun a lot of the time. And that was something we definitely wanted to capture. Um, because that's not always clear. And in terms of like holding the line, like we knew that was gonna be hard the whole time. And then especially when it rained, uh, just that first several days, which we tried to really show how crazy that was. It's hard to know that you're not familiar with LA weather. That was insane. Like it was so <laughs> wet, it was so cold. Um, and my filmmaking partner, Yoni, um, we tried to go find rain boots and we couldn't. We went to like three different stores. Like no one in LA was prepared for rain. Um, and it just made it that much harder for everyone there to show up and bring that energy. Yeah. The Chicago teachers don't really feel sorry for the LA boots on this front. Whatever it's worth. Because the rain wasn't frozen and driving in your face in like six inches, you know, mile an hour ice pellets. Then we feel something. They're no. soft. Angelinos are soft. I mean, no offense. No, but that's a fair point. I mean, because it's not—it's not the weather, right? It's the fact that you're—you're you're not getting paid, and working-class people in this country require a paycheck in order to do mundane things like make their rent, pay their medical bills, and I—you know—it's the pressure. And in the first instance, you don't think about it, but as the strike wears on, and you're—and you're waking up every morning thinking about that for a straight week. It starts to have a, a, a really intense psychological feeling. It's a pressure. It gets people, uh, you know, inevitably the boss threatens to take your health insurance, and then people who, like, have got someone in their family with cancer start to get nervous. And, you know, so the weather becomes kind of a, a metaphor, if you will, for the psychological uh, pressure that people are under uh, because the strike is hard. And that, that, one, that one teacher was talking about, you know, like it's getting hard to explain to her husband. Right. Um, what's going on as I imagine her bank account, she checks it every day and it's getting smaller and smaller and smaller. Well, and teachers like to pretend we're middle class, right? And so, you know, well, a lot of times teachers do, I mean, just to keep it real. And, you know, so you're probably the most, you know, but because we, we have a collective union and a collective way of looking at the world, we're probably the most left-wing person in our families a lot of time. So there's that pressure as well. Um, you know, you've got a everyone's got a conservative uncle, but you're, if you're a teacher, you're you're likely to be surrounded by a lot of people who read the Chicago Tribune or the LA Times and believe what it says, um, and think that you're full of it in some ways, and should just go back to work and shut up about all the protesting and striking. Um, for for both of you, what uh, in your experience have you experienced, and you know, what did you see in LA in terms of the balance between? building the structure that can withstand the test and this kind of constant reinforcement of the structure as it's being eroded by the experience of the strike? I would, I don't know if it speaks to that directly, but it's one of the things that I really appreciated about the film. Um, you know, striking is just the part of the iceberg that sticks up again above the water. Uh, and I, I don't mean that in the sense of like, you know, the energy it produces, because, you know, obviously what we were saying before about euphoria, the, the mass quality of the strike, that's a qualitatively different thing than 
making one-on-one, I mean, you can make a million one-on-one phone calls and it wouldn't have the impact on society as 35,000 people walking on a strike. Um, uh, but in terms of organizing, I, the, the, um, so much of what makes a strike possible ha- happens outside of public view. And, and frankly, I'm sure, in, like in LA, in Chicago, we, paid a, we have a close relationship with the union in LA. We paid attention to that for a long time. Um, you know, uh, and, and the movie shows more than we usually get to see. But there's stuff that the movie didn't, didn't get. So, for example, in Los Angeles, the United Teachers of Los Angeles didn't have either an organizing department or a strategic research department at all. Um, Until and, the leadership took it over. Right, right. right. And, then for, and then didn't have a budget that would support that. So, um, uh, in 2016, they ran a campaign to increase their dues by a third. And that passed overwhelmingly. Uh, and that was what allowed the union to hire staff that could begin doing the internal organizing, uh, which produced the kind of unity in their buildings, and also start out reaching to neighborhood groups, which produced the external support. And and so it's like, I just, I, I really appreciated that like it, it, it started with scenes of like, here's you know, here's meetings and buildings, but there's, there's there's 10 times more things going on in the lead up to that process that we don't normally get to see, but are really important to think about, um, and without which strikes like that wouldn't be possible. Yeah, Dale, yeah. can you talk about that a little in terms of, like, obviously you couldn't step all the way back to 2016 or prior to that. When did the um, kind of rank and file slate take over? What year was that? I want to say 20. I, I don't yeah, right know. Around, yeah, that was their first thing with their first big campaign. But like, you didn't go all the way back then, but you did go significantly back from before the strike. How did you decide to? Did you did you know? Did you know kind of like what you were doing when you did that, or were you sort of just starting to poke around <laughs> and figure it out? We definitely knew what we were doing. Actually, Yoni <laughs> and I met at the socialism conference in 2019 when we uh, when I was filming at the conference at the conference you guys are at for the socialism film. Um, and we were talking about, um, I had all this wonderful material from the Oklahoma teacher strike. And so we were trying to sort of brainstorm, well, what could we do with that? Should that be its own film? And so, you know, thinking about uh, strikes in general, and then as soon as we sort of heard that something in LA might be happening, we were like, oh, we got to go. Like, we could go and get there early. And like you said, we weren't there really early enough to begin when when that power started building um but i i think uh, i think you jesse bird saying so like a lot of strike films insofar as there are lots of strike films uh start at strike people just think oh you just show up and then you hold like a sign and then you win or lose or something um but we began with all of the meetings and the strike authorization vote to the TA vote and the tentative agreement vote. And that was sort of what we were hoping would have natural bookends of where to begin and end the story and then how to do that without just having meetings. Uh, because, uh, right, because it is just so many meetings over and over again. And we knew we didn't want to have a main character. I think that's also a thing that a lot of films do that I just... Um, doesn't categorically like ideologically as a filmmaker I don't love that approach because it you know reifies individuals and it it just like it doesn't look at systemic problems so how do we tell this story without just focusing on Cecily's experience or how do we tell it without just focusing on one teacher but trying to like paint a whole picture of the ecosystem of all the different players without trying to give a hierarchy like we didn't we didn't uh, give anyone lower thirds. Like, there's no names, no yeah. credits. Yeah. Um, which was a thing we went back and forth on a lot. I hope that you guys appreciated that. I like that uh, a lot. Be abusing, because you were like, who is this person? But not wanting to get hung up on, this is a chapter chair, this is a vice president, this is, like, that type of stuff can be just really overwhelming as a viewer, and then also, you know, like, everyone was important. And I wouldn't want to say, like, this parent who organized this, like, you know, one meeting was just as important as these students or, like, the whole, uh, yeah, the whole landscape was definitely something we're trying to, to play with. I, I, I appreciate that. And, in fact, the people in the room might not know, the president of UTLA at the time, 
um, wasn't Cecily. Cecily subsequently became the president, but the president at the time was Alex Caputo Pearl, who doesn't have any lines in the movie, which I which I actually kind of like. He appears briefly yeah. at the end, yeah. I think, right? I don't think I... Like, but not with any lines, but just a bit. Right, yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, I really appreciated that. I, I think it's... And it does get at something, um, which is that the... You know, on a molecular level, the, all the, the the important conversations leading up to a strike, in a lot of ways, are happening in people's faculty rooms. You know, are happening in the hallway outside their their classrooms. You know, it, it's at union meetings of local schools, in which it's not some big person giving an important speech, quote unquote, but it's it's your coworkers and you hashing out the question about whether or not if we. You know, I, I, I'm of the opinion that workers think about stopping work all the time. <laughs> you, know, I, you know, like a couple of times a day, you know. <laughs> and, and what you know, when it's just that, like, when a union is campaigning that way, um, you know, it starts to align the conversations that people are having. It starts, you know, there starts to be momentum around that, and people get to have the sense that, like, there's enough of us thinking this that we could pull this off. Um, and, I, you know, so it, it kind of, those molecular conversations start to gain in, in uh, intensity, there's more and more of them, and like the way that like a flood starts with just one molecule of ice melting, and then it's a trickle, and then it's a flow, and then it's a, you know, then it's a stream, and then it's a river, and then it's a torrent, you know, that's kind of, um, that's that process, and so I, I appreciated that in the, in the film, you get a sense of that. And not only that, but parents and, and, uh, and students as well. There's really, um, how did you like decide how to balance kind of, um, I mean, we just talked about how you didn't like identify who's who, but how did you decide to balance all of those different kind of categories of participants? Actually, the only people who were named were the enemy. It was the, uh, uh, there was named multiple times. <laughs> Sorry, go ahead. Yeah, he was named multiple, you know, you have a villain. Uh, is what people kept saying, like, you know, where's the tension, where are the stakes going to be in every film, and sort of how do we do that without, you know, getting into the nuance of, like, charters and collocations, and it just, it was getting pretty wonky, we're like, we're all just going to highlight Buchner and Honey and hope that that uh, encompasses everything. Um, you know, filming with students is hard because they're minors, um, and so that just, in general, as a filmmaker, is really something you want to avoid because uh, you need their parents' permission and getting that ahead of time can be really hard, uh, especially maybe a lot of these students, their parents didn't, you know, didn't agree with the strike or they wanted them to go to school and it just was going to be sort of fraught. So we were, we actually filmed a lot with students in public spaces, um, but just knowing, yeah, we just wanted to get like pieces of everything, like pieces of, you know, Parents speaking in Spanish in, in like a in like one school district area, and then uh, kids over here. And I think didn't make we had yeah we had a lot of kids that we didn't end up end up keeping because you wanted to keep it short and moving, and you know not wanting to focus again on just one specific person. We also had a lot with Cecily that that didn't that you know don't want to overbear everyone. One of the things which. Uh, I've always really appreciated about Los Angeles, and, and I think you get a little sense of it, but I wanted to lift it up because I think it ties into the question of rank and file democracy, which I thought you which was portrayed, I, I thought, in a moving way at the end of the, of the movie. Yeah. Um, is that um, Los Angeles is, is really clear about, about, um, about the, in the way they communicate about why they're doing what they're doing. And um, I think it's important because we make fun of them in Chicago. It's like Los Angeles, you know, they've always got four key demands and um, two strategic pillars and you know, a five-step democratic process for deciding what each one of those things are. I mean, I'm making it up, but it, it, I mean, really, this is um, three benchmarks. And it, it's very teacher, like you know, the whole teacher's plan backwards for outcomes. You just start with what your students need to do, when they need to do it, and then you figure out, like, okay, and now it's two months, and so you, you kind of do that kind of thing going on. And, and the reason I think it's important, uh, I can illustrate with a story. Uh, and that is, uh, right after the Los Angeles strike uh, settled, the, um, the AFT had, a, the American Federation of Teachers had a, had a leaders meeting in D.C. Um, 
and Los Angeles had a rep there, and, and I was part of that body. It's a room full of other vice, you know, other union presidents, people were vice presidents at AFT. And uh, it was about contract fights. And there's another, another union leader who I won't name, um, basically did this story, and he was like, you know, it, it was all narrative, which in narratives can be very compelling, right? But it was like, you know, the boss was trying to screw us, but I wasn't going to let that happen, so I went in there and told the boss, you're not going to screw us, and he said, oh, well, what about this and this? And I said, that's still screwing us, and so we did this, and we did that, and then we won. And that was sort of like, um, that was the, the presentation that he made. It, you know, it was probably a half an hour long, and you know, my eyes are rolling. Um, and then um, the person from LA gets up there, uh, and, and they were very straightforward. Um, it was actually two, two folks, one a union officer and, and a community organizer uh, who wasn't or didn't work for the union. Um, they said these are the demands that were determined through, um, uh, you know, uh, in, you know, through a democratic process from members and community. And they one, two, three, four, and I forget how many there were, eight or ten or something, and they just listed them. They passed them out actually on a handout. Um, uh, and then they said, um, uh, this is what we argued would be necessary to achieve those things. This is what we did, and these are the results. And then, I mean, it was it was remarkable. Their whole presentation, including a short film and all the handouts, was ten minutes long. It was one third as long as the other dude's story. And I. It, it, it's not a story about the economy of words or you know how cool LA is. I mean, I, I think they're they're doing a good job there. But it was so much more democratic because what it did is it was clear about what they were fighting to achieve, how they had arrived at that, and what they thought they needed to do in order to achieve it. And that meant that everyone in the union could participate in, in that calculation. So when you go back to that molecular process where people decide if they're going to go out. People can say, well, to each other, you know, we're, is it realistic for us to win these things? You know, are we going to be able to strike with enough people and with enough community support? And, and if so, then, then there's a process by which people can vote authorization and go into the process. And if, people, and if you can't win that argument, um, then obviously you don't get that authorization vote and you can't go out on strike. So I, I just wanted to lift that up because it's, it's something which... Um, uh, I don't think we see enough of, and I think it's important. And the, the clarity of the, the demands there also facilitates this rank-and-file caucus-led, left-led union being more democratic in an even more expansive sense, right, in terms of the community right. input, which leads unions, teachers unions like the CTU and like the UTLA to have overwhelming parent support when you go out on strike, which, um, uh, is this being live recorded? Okay. I mean, I live in Rhode Island, and like, we have teachers unions that would not be getting that kind of support if they went out on strike. And so that, like, it, it, it is notable that creating this process of democratizing for the rank and file is so, for teachers in particular, is so interrelated to the expansion of the democracy to the, community, to the parents and the students. Well. Right. They offer raises that reject our school improvement demands. Um, they did that in Chicago too. Right. <laughs> right. No. And then tell us that we're the ones trying to hurt children. And then we're just in it for ourselves. Um, Can I say something? Yeah. It's just, to, um, just to contrast what was so clear um, to me, having been at the Oklahoma uh, strike as well, just how much uh, like they were radically different uh, for a variety of reasons, but specifically that lack of transparency and democracy um, at that strike. There was just like the, the teachers didn't know what was going on, let alone have any voice or say in, in how to move it in that direction. And that was really impressive in LA. Uh, from leadership all the way down to the community, like everyone, the students felt such ownership of what was going on that I just I want to highlight that for, for everyone. And also just they let us in. Um, which I just also just in a room with, with people who are organizers just want to stress when I get the opportunity, how filmmakers can be your friends. Um, <laughs> and people think a lot about like, oh, and like are wary of media or this is a private room and don't want to give access. Um, but if you can find the right filmmaker and develop a relationship of trust, um, we can be like a really important ally um, in that in that fight. And it's good propaganda, but also, but not like simplistic. It also tells a complicated story that shows the difficulties as well. And I've often thought that there's like not a lot of good writing 
on organizing because frankly like a lot of the complications of organizing everyone in here organizes know are kind of like embarrassing and awkward or mundane or you know full of drama or whatever you know but um, and I think you did a good job of doing like a very like moving like piece of propaganda AM and that was like complex and like interesting um, I, the, 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 obviously as most people here know the, the 2012 CTU strike kind of kicked off this wave of militant teacher organizing and striking. If if someone had made a film about, did someone make a film? If someone had made a film about that, um, what what scene or scenes would you like really want to be in there? What's interesting about um, the 2012 CT strike is I actually think it was very similar to the 19, I mean, people compare the 19 CT strike and the 19 UTLA strike. And I don't actually think it's the right comparison, because um, the C, uh, you know, the CTU in the, for the district, not the charter. We've done a bunch of charter strikes, eight charter strikes. But um, don't. But if you look at just the district strikes, we have, we actually 19 was the third strike in a series. We struck every contract cycle. Um, uh, in 2016, it was a one day, um, which was a, a political strike uh, around revenue. We had not. It was a long that funding process that you have to exhaust before you have the right to strike in, in Illinois. Um, we had not exhausted that. We went out anyway. Um, it was an illegal one-day strike with other unions. Uh, I shut down a big chunk of the city. It was for explicitly political demands. It was for funding social services and and um, raising tax money. We, a lot of our, our uh, demands there were fiscal targets big banks that had made hundreds of millions of dollars off of the school system through toxic interest rate swaps and other crap like that. Um, uh, and that's actually an important strike. But it was a long way of me saying that like the, the 2012 CTU strike um, was shorter than 19. It accomplished less in contractual or trade union terms. Um, it, there was a significant number of people that felt bad about ending it. Um, the one thing that happened for the CTU strike in 12 that, and it's not always easy to produce this, but in 12, um, members refused to vote the contract without, and it was there was a meeting to discuss that on a Sunday, and they refused to vote it until the whole thing was, until they could read all of it. They demanded an extra day, right? Yeah, and the extra day was like on Rosh Hashanah. And um, there was a, I can still remember it, you know, and it would be this moment. It would be like, you're, so you're in a really packed room full of angry delegates who've been on strike for a week. And someone said, you know, and we're saying like, we need to vote this thing and go back. You know, you know, there's a, there's a lot of danger for us that, you know, they could, um, you know, they could sue us, that they're taking us to court, that, you know, I had been subpoenaed and whatnot. Uh, members are like, no, we're not doing it without voting. And then someone's like, well, we're not going back on our shot. You know, we didn't deserve, so you know we're going to win for two extra days. So the CTU, so unlike the UTLA strike, which I think for a lot of people felt precipitate, and those conversations at the end that I thought you did a good job showing happened in a pretty short time. In in Chicago, in twelve, those things happened over three days. Um, people like got to literally sit around and read the whole agreement around, you know, in, in study groups around their schools. Um, but in, in terms of the, you know. But it turns out that you know you never you never get justice under capitalism with one strike. That's the reason why people strike more than once, right? Um, and at the end at the end of every strike, it feels like you're making a pretty big concession to your boss by going back. Uh, and that's just, you know I, I, that's complicated and hard, and, and, and it's a difficult thing. And unless you've been in that situation and argued that through. Um, you know, I, I would urge people not to take an overly simplistic view of, of, of how, uh, of, of what a, kind of a moment that is and how fraught that is. Um, but yeah, it might be it might be that meeting where someone says, "Well, what, what do you mean an extra day? We're not going back to Russia." So it's too late to Anyway, it might be that. Um, one more question on uh, teachers' union stuff and one on film stuff, and then we open it up to, to questions to finish out um, from you all. Um, first, where where is this all? I'm not going to say post COVID because obviously COVID is still with us, but co post the acute uh, 
stage of the pandemic, um, which resulted in a new wave of demonization of teachers after like the teachers movement led by the CTU, I really beat that back. I felt like we really turned the page on the waiting for Superman era. Um, and now I feel like it's returned in many ways. That plus um, massive just hemorrhaging of um, student populations from major districts. Um, where, where do things sit now? Oh, that's for you. <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. Uh, I mean, in some really very concrete way, I mean, you know, the, the waiting for Superman moments is shorthand for the amount of bipartisan consensus that had built up around neoliberal attacks on unions, on working class prerogatives, separate in the education sector, that happened really under Obama with Arne Duncan as the, as the Secretary of Education. And it built up a lot of momentum. It had a, you know, there was a, a, a filmmaking and ideological narrative part of it. Then there was just like a bunch of policy they passed and laws. I mean, Race to the Top, which was Obama's education policy, basically had a like they had a, I don't know, I don't remember what the number was, a um, uh, billion dollars, several billion dollars, which they were going to give to states based on the states' willingness to undo tenure and make and, and open up non-union charter schools. They're like, what are those? Like sort of cash prizes for union busting. And they didn't have enough actual money on the table to like really give every department of education across the, the US uh, significant amounts of new money. They just did it on a, on a, you know, they dangled some prize money out there and, and let. If you get first place, then. Right, yeah, exactly. So a few people got the money, but most people just got the anti labor, um, uh, the anti labor policy. So, uh, you know, that was sort of their high point. And then, and they went too far. And it turns out that none of the things that they were saying about these policies are going to improve the experience for students in schools turn out to be true. You know, oh, we'll have really great teaching and learning if only we can make teachers job insecure. If only we can drive veterans out of the profession. No, no, that's not true. You're not going to fire your way to a, 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 an inspired and good teaching force. You know, um, so there was a backlash against that. And and, uh, and we we did a good job, I think, you know, across this, the states, discrediting that. Um, but I, I, the reason I started by 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 locating that in a kind of a in a political moment and in a, in a bipartisan political consensus is because I think what's happening um, right now in this country is the growth of the right has emboldened folks in mainstream policy arenas. To, to start refloating ideas about let's just like get rid of the unionized public sector. Um, and you know, there's a polarization, there's more political polarization between Democrats and Republicans on this issue now. Uh, in places where they get all the, the parts of government, where they get both houses and, and the you know and the uh, and state houses, they've really gone far. You, you know, we're talking about you know a draconian um, voucher policies. Uh, we've talked of you know a lot of like union busting and attacks in, in various states and whatnot, and education runs through the states and localities. So there's a there's a threat there. But the other part of it is that like the bipartisan consensus does exist on the question of COVID safety, where it came to be that the big city mayors, the you know um, the Blasio Adams, uh, and in Chicago Rahm and Lori Lightfoot in particular, they went up kind of taking. Uh, DeSantis' position, which is that you've got to open up the economy and let things go back, and that we can't let COVID restrictions get in the way of, of opening up our economies for business. And so, like when the when the CTU was trying to conduct COVID safety fights, um, you know, the, it wasn't just Fox News that was going after us. I mean, CNN was more vicious than than anything. And, and you know, so you saw the you, and so. And I'm not saying that like it's going back to that, that the Democrats or Republicans are lined up on all their program, but the Republicans have a really vicious anti-union, but not just anti-union, anti-public education policy. That they would they would be happy to see schools be privatized and I think a public education go away largely. Um, and to the places where they get control or the places where the Democrats line up with them, we're in a lot of danger of it going back. So I, you know. 
similar, not exactly the same dynamic, but but we need to be looking out for the renewed political attacks of public education for sure. That's coming. Um, and just briefly, where's where are the unions? Uh, where's this rank and file movement that you all kicked off here at right now? Uh, it was hard to fight COVID fights. I mean, I, it, as far as I know, there was one union in the country that pulled off COVID strikes. I'm sorry, not COVID strikes. Um, there's a court case waiting its way through that um, um, where they want to say that we were involved in a legal strike, and we, of course, would never be involved in an illegal strike. There was a remote-only COVID work action <clears throat> uh, that looked a lot like teachers refusing to go into buildings and no school being held, but that's but most union couldn't get there. The uh, CTU was able to get there because we're a pretty militant union uh, and have quite a lot of history of that. Um, so I, you know, a lot of unions dealt that. You know, there's a little bit of, and I can't entirely blame them for not for their not having been more militant around because it was freaking divisive internally and hard. Um, uh, but I will say that like the thing that right now is that is a radicalizing issue, and as people come out as they come out of the pandemic, um, you know, I'm working in a school, and most people in school aren't wearing masks at this point. And even in Chicago, where we had very hard mask fights, you know, schools are 90% are mask free. You know, so as we're coming, so we're coming out of the pandemic in that sense. Even if the, even if COVID is still around, it's inflation up. You know, people are pissed about the degree to which the living standards have been eroded. Um, there haven't, you know, so a lot of the improvements that we really hope to see aren't haven't, you know, there's still an incredibly unequal education system. People feel it's under a lot of threat, and, I, and I'm confident militancy will come back around that, um, and, the, um, and the difficulty and the divisions that have been inside the class around COVID fights. Um, you know, when you when you get over that, when you can survive that kind of challenge, you come out of it stronger, and, I, and, and, and that's where I think we're headed. Um, yeah, well, briefly, and then I will promise I'll open it up. Um, question about like the filmmaking style, and I have no vocabulary to talk about film, so like part of my amateur. Ishness. Um, like, just given the other films I've seen from you, this one seems, does seem particularly kind of like a certain type of agitprop style. The text on screen in particular really reminded me of La Hora de los Hornos, The Hour of the Furnaces, like a really classic revolutionary Latin American film trilogy. Um, can you tell me a little bit about your, your approach to this? Did we watch that film while we were editing? Uh, yeah, yeah, probably. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think. Uh, you know, when you make a film, there are like a few, when I make a film, there are a few like very beginning questions that I ask myself and uh, one of my, like, am I the right person to make this film? And then uh, what, who am I making it for and what do I want them to do with that information? Um, and so I think the last several films that I've made, I, you know, it was really clear like who my demographic was and what I wanted them to do with that. So that was very different, right, for the socialism film, which was, you know, much larger, uh, like, a, it's a feature length, it had a lot of animation, it was, like, much more for a broader audience, and um, working um, with Yomi on this film, right, I had a filmmaking partner, so it wasn't <laughs> just my decision, uh, but, like, really trying to hone specifically on who we were making this for, and I think um, we were really looking more for um, for organizers uh, and activists and teachers and other union people, and so didn't have to like sort of begin with a certain level, um, and then felt more comfortable being more overtly political um, and taking a stronger stance. Um, and yeah, and then playing more, I think, with music, and then with the text on screen. Um, we had like an editing retreat um, with the editor, who's also like a big. A uh, big time socialist, um, and so the three of us together were watching like a lot of um, of those types of films for inspiration. Cool. So, um, yeah. I, I do call them. They'll be very excited. <laughs> uh, yeah, I loved it. Um, so I think maybe like three questions that we'll do rapid fire, and then the answers. Um, if if we want to have uh, come up to the mic, um, one, two, um, and. Three, um, and, I, and I think um, uh, well, Gail will be around after us. So, hey, come right and talk to us after. But yeah, please come up to the mic or just stand up and, 
me now? Ah, yes. Oh, good. Hey, listen, awesome video. I really liked it because not only was it about, you know, L.A. and about education. Do we have any edu educators in the audience? Mm -hmm. Yeah, okay, that's, that's good. That's why I'm here, too, although not an educator. Um, but I believe in that, that you did a good job because not only did you show that strikes work, but the element of the strike that was more than just about salaries and wages, which most of the wealthy rich billionaire class would make us believe that that's why I think we have unions, because we want to only negotiate about wages and benefits, but it was so much more it was about class size. It was about quality of education um, for the students. So there was a two-pronged approach to it. Keep your lenses clean because there's going to be more strikes. Okay, you see it now with the Amazon, you see it more now with the coffee shops, you see it more in a lot of places, okay? It's going to be more strikes, people are fed up. And that's why we're here, that's what socialism to me is is, is about. I know I'm going to, you know, I'm going to ask Got to be answer. quick, got to be really quick, because we got to, yeah, we're running out of time. Oh, okay. Sorry. Well, I got plenty of time. I'm retired, but I'll, yeah, I'll, I'll respect you, your request. I think the strikes are significant. I read Joe Burns lately, uh, his book about strikes, and it's important that because strikes work because together we can, okay? That's what the Socialism thing to Conference about, is about for me is um, the solidarity part of it. Okay, and so my question is really, like, where do we go next, okay, on organizing effective strikes? Um, because I know in Massachusetts, the MTA, Massachusetts Teachers Association, you cannot strike. You cannot strike. It's illegal to strike. Joe yeah. Burns writes about, well, we don't care really if it's illegal to strike. We're going to strike anyway. And so let me just put the question to, to you guys. Where do you think... Um, the strike is going to have a resurgence. Thank you. Thank you very much. And if there's a if there was a teacher uh, or otherwise school public public school worker in here who had their hand up who wanted to ask a question, um, please uh, uh, we'll take one of you in in line because uh, I, I should have asked. Yeah, come on up. All right, thank you. I'll be quick. Um, first, I want to say thank you for your leadership, dedication, patience, and centering our most marginalized students. Uh, and I know our union has done a great job at, um, I'm about to cry, <laughs> a lot, right? Teaching on the Southeast side, um, being in classrooms sometimes that have 50 kids in them, um, classes where students are homeless, um, a police presence when you know that somebody else in the community have had an encounter um, with the police that was unfortunate, one where they murdered um, a family member, but you show up to school every day and they're in your face. Um, so I know CTU has taken stances um, that have pushed the conversation and that have demanded uh, making sure that there is housing for our students or making sure that there are community schools or making sure that um, our students who are traumatized don't have to walk into buildings and see um, police officers. My question is, because there's 25,000 members of the union, what do those political conversations look like for those who might not agree and those who might not, um, yeah, those who might not agree? How do we have that dialogue with them and how do we um, have those conversations so that we can be one and be more united? Thank you. Um, I, I'm glad that you mentioned de Blasio and Lightfoot because the joke I always make is that I live in Chicago, I used to live in New York, and the one point of commonality politically between me and my Republican grandfather is that you both fucking hate the mayor. <laughs> and um, I was wondering about this in the context of like, you know, private sector unionization, when the union fights the boss, the boss is like Howard Schultz or Jeff Bezos. In the public sector, when the union fights the boss, the boss is often like a marquee democratic leader. And so I was wondering if you could speak to how that influences your organizing as a teacher. Um, and I'm going to turn it over for answers. Okay. Um, I, I'm just going to, I'm going to um, go in order. Uh, 
the first question, organizing effective strikes, the question of illegality is no joke. If you're, like, LA tried to strike, they tried to do a one-day strike in 05. Did I get that? Is that number? I think that's right. Uh, there was a, a previous reform leader, similar to Chicago, actually, there was a reform leader from 01 to 04, and it was a one-term, pretty ineffective. In LA, they, uh, there was a reform leader that tried to organize a strike, Katie Duffy, in 05. The judge told them that if you do it, I'll take your license. So that's a pretty, I mean, that means you don't, when you're a teacher, that means you don't work again, right? So um, it, they then backed off and, and, uh, and also threatened the union a million dollars a day uh, fine. So of course, if you can get an illegal strike that everyone participates in, they can't actually, they can't actually follow through with that. But, you know, they can, but the question of like legal versus illegal is actually kind of an important question. And we've done strikes that aren't legally sanctioned. But, you know, we look around and we don't think that they're going to really be able to be effective in pulling off the, the penalties against us, so we do it anyway. So I, I, it's hard to answer that in kind of a schematic or you know, overarchingly abstract way. It's a question of, like, what do you have the horse on the ground to do? Because I assure you, you can strike. It's not that you can't strike. Yeah, you can. If it's illegal, it might be the consequences of it are, are, are significant enough so that it's not wise to do it. And therefore, you, you would have a hard time pulling off the unity you need. But that's questions that, as our movement gets stronger, um, we'll have to, we'll, we'll confront and deal with. What makes our movement stronger? Um, I, you know, at the heart, I, I really like that. I'm sorry, Stephen. Mm -hmm. uh, no, which I'm sorry. I, I'm going to the second question. Whitney, oh, is it? Yeah. yeah th th thank you for the question. I, I really appreciate it. It's like the CTU has. I think people think the CTU is like a magical machine that is able to take positions that are left wing and, you know, um, those are like, the top of the duck looks very calm on the water, but underneath the water it's paddling its ass off. <laughs> and that is, that, that's at the heart of a lot of the more political positions the union has taken. And partly we've tried to proceed by winning an argument with members about why we need to care about the question of, you know, um, housing first industrial housing is a pretty easy issue to win the argument on. Because people say, well, it's not realistic, it's outside the scope of our contract. And you just say, well, if our students don't have affordable places to live and leave, there's no teaching jobs. You know, people go, oh, okay, that's a fair point, right? Um, but then you get the question of police brutality, you know, and racist unconstitutional policing, uh, et cetera. And that's a harder argument because in a place like Chicago, there's a chunk of the teaching force that are married to cops or that, you know, live in the southwest side and part of a pretty socially conservative base. Um, and how do, you, how do you approach that argument? Um, well, one thing is that you, you'd be wrong to think the union hasn't had hard internal fights about it. And so one thing you have to do is you don't burn your activists by trying to appeal to just the, the mythical person in the middle of the union. Sometimes you actually have to take principled stands. So for example, in 2016, it came out that there was videotape of a cop shooting this guy with Juan McDonald 16 times in the back. Uh, and then it had been covered up during the time when Emmanuel was running for re-election. Uh, it came out right before Thanksgiving. And a, a coalition of anti-police fatality forces called a demonstration for Black Friday on Michigan Avenue. They called it quick. We had Jesse Jackson robocall our membership on Thanksgiving at about 5.30 in the afternoon, which is as soon as we could get the robocall out. I want you to, for a minute, think about how the family, uh, you know, a, a teacher sitting at the Thanksgiving dinner with her cop husband felt about getting a robocall from Jesse Jackson saying, tomorrow come out to a, a, a demonstration. We, people were pissed about that. We had a section of our membership that basically declared, you know, was done with our leadership at that point, and it's more or less been a permanent opposition since then. We came back and said, you know, a cop shot a kid 16 times in the back. You know, you're not the only one. That, you're upset about the phone call. There's other people that are upset about being shot. And, and, and so it's like, don't burn the activists that are actually upset about the police brutality. Give them a platform, give them confidence, let them have space in the union. It's their union too. We have to stop thinking about our unions as being sort of like the, the righteous property of the conservative section of the working class that's, you know, that, that has had control of the union's power all along. 
kinds of entitlement about it. They know how to speak up at meetings, but they're not the only folks in the union. And then once there's intensity, then you've got to figure out how to have conversations that produce more light than heat. Because, you know, it is true that it's not good for a union to have two, you know, passionate groups bashing each other and, and having huge nasty fights that way. Um, and so we've then tried to figure out how to have places where we can, like, say, okay, you know, our union isn't going to become an abolish the police, you know, uh, political action party. You know, we've got our membership opinion isn't, that doesn't represent our members where they're at. Um, some people think that. Some people think we need more cops. But the union is going to take positions that, that try to incorporate that and still have a, and still have a, uh, a social justice, uh, um, yeah, put forward a social justice position. So, you know, there's, there's uh, art and fight and, and a lot to that. And so the question that you asked is, you know, how does that work? That's where the real question begins. Um, and, and I want to I want to urge people. And I'm sorry, the, the last question um, can be repeated. I didn't have a chance to. Yeah. Basically. Oh, the mayor. Yeah, yeah, the mayor. I, I, I mean, actually, the reason I said I just said in order is because Laura Lightfoot's a cop. I, no, I mean literally, uh, you know, a prosecutor. Um, it, 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 as is Eric Adams, right? You know, Bloomberg probably wishes he's a cop. Uh, no, and so it's like, it, it, it is true that in the private sector, you might get yourself a fight against, you know, well, Austin Buechner was a gift because this guy actually was a private equity guy. He happens to be here in the schools. But, you know, yeah, I mean, you might be fighting a, a Koch brother or, you know, whatever, some, some um, corporate Republican asshole. Um, in a lot of municipal politics, the corporate asshole is a Democrat. But if you, the actual class content of their politics is often, is often very similar. Um, and, I, you know, I wish unions would do a better job just taking on those fights and being, and being more confrontational. It's, and it's been at the heart of what we've said. We, you know, it's like Laura Lightfoot ran in a program of fund the schools, you know, equity, racial justice. And then, and so we're like, great, if you actually deliver on that, we'll get along fine. But if you don't, we're going to be your implacable opponent. And guess what? She didn't, and we meant it. On that note, thank you, Jesse and like this episode, subscribe to our podcast and to the Haymarket Books YouTube channel, where events like this one are hosted live. And don't forget to check out haymarketbooks.org.